How's everyone doing? Good? A bit wet from the rain? Um, so for, since last year, uh, we have been going through this series on the book of Exodus, uh, looking at how the people of God had been uh, delivered from slavery in Egypt, and now they are moving on to this new way of life as people of God as well as a nation. And over the past few weeks, we got to the point in the story where we get to the Ten Commandments, and we've been going through them one by one. And as Matt said before, um, a lot of people, when they look at things like the Ten Commandments, they tend to view Christianity as this legalist, uh, legalistic uh, religion that it's all about following rules. But if you look at the context of the Ten Commandments, you will see that the commands and that all those rules, they are rooted in one thing, which is at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, which is, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from slavery from the house of Egypt. And so the way to live life for the people of Israel was rooted in who God is for them. Now, if you look through the story uh, from that moment on, you will see that their path wasn't always easy because they, they were slaves in Egypt for, for around 400 years. And when you stay in a place for 400 years, generations and generations and generations, uh, living uh, under a culture and a worldview that is different from yours, uh, you are bound to mix some things. You are bound to follow some of the things of that culture. In their case, uh, the way the Egyptians and the Egyptian empire used to think through. And you will see this in the people of uh, Israel as they move out of Egypt, that they still struggle with many things. They make a golden calf because they are impatient. And there are certain points in the story where, where they get really hungry and uh, thirsty, and they wish they were back in Egypt, even though they were slaves. Because he, you're bound to appropriate some things of the culture. So they had these, this problem, uh, two problems that I would highlight. One is this mixing of things, which we call syncretism, and the other one is to remain faithful to God, uh, despite of the consequences that that may have. Now this, um, tension of a believer or as a people of God between these two things is not only limited to the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Because to live the Exodus is not, it, it not only means to be free from slavery, but to acquire a new way of life. Now, like I said, we have been going through this series on Exodus but today we're going to take a small detour from being uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert, and we are going to go to this island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos, 
where John, a follower of Jesus, is there. He says he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he has a series of visions uh, at that island. And he will record that in a book which, personally for me, it's my favorite book of the Bible. I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite book of the Bible, but I do. So I would like to invite you to open to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, chapter 5. Now, just to give you some background, the book is a little weird in some of the things. And in this particular moment in chapter 5, uh, John is, is having a vision that Jesus is giving him about heaven. And more specifically, on a place in heaven where you see the throne of God. And so I would like to, with you, read chapter 5, and then we'll, we're going to go from there. So Revelation 5, chapter 1, it says... Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So one of the elders says to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, uh, for what you have done on that cross through your son. And I ask you that you gives us a, a bigger picture or a better perspective of what actually happened in that moment. That's what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you ask anyone uh, or most people, um, if I say to you the book of Revelation, what's the first word that comes to your mind? And a lot of people will say, uh, terror or horror or end of the world or like scary stuff and strange animals and weird places and weird things. I remember uh, during my undergrad studies, one of my professors who was the professor of biblical interpretation, he would always ask for, uh, for a new class of students and he would say, um, and all the students, they were already preaching in many churches. So he would ask, what is the book of the Bible that you are most comfortable preaching? And what is the book that you will avoid at all times? <laughs> and so the books that people would usually preach, they would vary, but they would be mostly uh, the letters and the epistles. Because although they have a lot of complex things, they are very argumentative and you can follow the logic of what Paul or Peter is saying. But when he got to the point of what is the book that you would most avoid, there was a general consensus among all the, all the classes. They would say, Revelation is the one I would avoid because I have no idea what I would do with that book. And one of the things that he called our attention to is the purpose of the book. Because if you look in chapter 1, uh, John, on verse 3, he says about the book and about the people who are reading as well as hearing the words of the book, he says, blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep them. And the word blessed is the same word that appears in Matthew 5 when it talks about the beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means to be overjoyed or, or to be overflowing with joy. And then we come to the question again, when I read this book, do I feel overjoyed or overflowing with joy? And usually people have the opposite uh, reaction to it. Which leads me to two things. That one, John doesn't know what he's talking about in terms of how the book is going to be received. Or two, which I'm inclined to think, that we have been reading the book wrong and we have not been getting the message. So I want to give a brief overview of the book until we get to chapter 5, and then we're going to go part by part on chapter 5. So the book starts in chapter 1, and John is in this island in Patmos. And on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, 
and he says that he hears this loud voice like a sound of a trumpet. And the voice says, write what you will hear and see, and you will record in a scroll, in a book. And when John turns around to see who is speaking to him, it's Jesus. But the way Jesus is portrayed here is very differently than what you see in the Gospels. Because when John turns around, he sees Jesus, but Jesus has this hair as white as snow and eyes red like flaming fire and a sword coming out of his mouth and feet like polished bronze. All this image and all this symbolism to portray his majesty, to show him as majestically as possible. And when John sees this vision, he, the text says he falls like he was dead on the floor, which I imagine I would do the same if I saw something like that. And then after this vision, Jesus says, you will write some messages to send to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And that's what you have in chapters two and three. So, and all the messages, they, they have more or less the same structure. And you will see as Jesus is talking to those churches that there are two problems that you see in, in them. First, that some of them were mixing the things of God with the things of the culture that was over them. In that case, the Roman Empire. Very similar to what we see in Exodus. So you see, Jesus says constantly in the letters, he says, repent. Pay attention to what you're doing because you are, although you are part of a people of God, your mind and your behavior and your values seems to be very much attached to the way the empire is doing things. So he gives this uh, admonition to them to pay attention to this. And the second thing that we see in the letters is the idea of being faithful to this new way of life, despite of the consequences that they may have. So he says, be faithful, keep being faithful, and I know that things might not go well if you do. And if you know a little bit of history of Christians in the, Ro in the Roman Empire, things weren't that great. Overall, there wasn't particularly a big uh, persecution in the first century. You had traces of persecutions in various cities where you see in the letters, but there were some things that were pretty horrible. For example, uh, during the reign of Nero, Caesar, one of the things that he would do to light the way of his garden uh, to his castle, he would put uh, crucified Christians on the path and he would light them on fire to light his path all the way to the church, all the way to his castle. So it wasn't a nice place to live. And if you uh, remain faithful to God, that might be your destiny. But 
if you make certain concessions, concessions and you mix things, you might be okay. So the message of John is not a, an easy message to follow in the first century. And, I, and, and as I was thinking through this, uh, I can see how this can apply to us. Of course, no one is crucifying people on the streets and lighting them on fire. But there are still uh, contexts in which we live which will require for us to take a stance as believers. Maybe, perhaps, in your work, there are certain um, things that your boss might require you to do that you know goes against the principles of God. And then that moment, you say, what do I do? Do I let go of the principles? and be okay with him, and as a result, I can further my career? Or will I remain faithful and say no, but have the potential to have my career a bit compromised because of this? That's certainly what was happening in the first century. One of the things that you would see, especially in the economy in the Roman Empire, is that a lot of the business deals, they would be done in the temples, in the pagan temples. And the temples weren't just empty buildings where people would go and make deals. The, the people would actually participate in all sorts of things uh, inside. And as Christians in the first century, they would need to make a choice. Do I go to the temple and let go of everything I believe in order to make things happen? Or do I remain faithful? But if I remain faithful, I'm not going to be able to do all those deals. And as a result, I'm not going to have food and water and house and everything. So, and you will see this in the book of Revelation at the moment that he says that the believers needs to, need to make a choice whether they will have the mark of the lamb of Jesus or the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast means to have an allegiance to the empire and to the way of living like the Romans did. Now, as we go through this whole thing, I say, okay, I know what I have to do and I know what I can do, but... This type of stuff tends to take a toll on us after some time. And we may get very discouraged or oppressed. And like, how am I going to be sustained in all of this? Much like the people of Israel in, when they left Egypt, they had all this new way of life to live, but how are, how are they going to be sustained through that? And for them, it was to remember who God was for them. And so for us, the New Testament will focus on that, and the book of Revelation will focus on that, but he will expand uh, a bit more, which gives the title of my sermon for today, which is a bit cliche, but I hope you will understand later.
So the title of my sermon is Jesus is Perfect. And I'm hoping by the end you will understand what I mean by this. So when you get to chapter 4, you get this big vision of heaven. And it's much the Jewish way to describe things. Um, it's, it's similar when you see a painter do something on a canvas. I don't know if you've ever seen someone painting like a, a landscape. If you haven't, you can go on YouTube and put like Bob Ross and he has millions of videos. And what he does, the painter, he will usually start painting the clouds and the backgrounds and everything on the back is a bit fuzzy and hazy. And then after he's done with that, he will paint something more detailed, which is more at the foreground of the painting. And as he goes through these layers, he will, go, he will get more specific and more specific and more specific until you get the whole picture with the main thing, which he will do it with all sorts of details to highlight that. And Revelation sort of does this in this, in chapters 4 and 5, but it does it in the opposite way. Instead of painting all the background to get to the main thing in the scene, it will start with the main thing in the scene and it will grow out of that. So Revelation 4 starts with John seeing the throne and the one sitting on the throne because that's the whole center of the vision for him. It's the throne. And God is described using the, these precious stones and this rainbow around the throne that looks like an emerald. And so it, it really highlights his majestical features. And then from that center, you, he widens the vision and he sees two groups. One is 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on them. And the elders are described as having uh, these garments, the, these white garments, which in the book of Revelation is usually uh, used to refer to the people of God, to the believers and to the saints. So these elders, they seem to represent the body of Christ, the church of Christ. And beside the elders, you also have these, these really weird four living creatures that appear that have six wings, and one looks like an ox, the other looks like a lion, the other looks like a person, the other like an eagle. And what most scholars uh, think about these creatures as they look, not only in Revelation, but in other texts that have this type of language, is that these creatures represent uh, the whole creation. So you have in the scene God at the center of all things in his throne and these two groups that represent the body of Christ as well as the whole creation in chapter 4. And when you get to the end of chapter 4, then you have the, this big contrast because you see in the letters to the churches that things on earth are not going well because either you are loyal to God and you suffer consequences or you are loyal to the empire and you let go of everything you believe. So there is all these 
all this tension going on. And then you have this vision on chapter 4 of heaven with a throne and the elders and the living creatures, and it's all wonderful and beautiful. And you're like, how are these two things going to come together? Are they going to come together? How is this possible? So I'm going to spoil the message. So if you never read the book, I'm sorry. But <laughs> I'm still going to spoil when you get to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, John has his last vision in the whole book. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, this doesn't mean that there isn't any water. The sea in uh, Jewish thinking represented chaos and disorder. So what he's saying is that in this new reality, there will be no more chaos. There will be no more tension. And he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then you get to the question, how is, he, how is the story going to go from that tension and wonderful thing to this beautiful thing where heaven and earth is together and there is no more chaos, no more disorder, and everything is good? Well, in order for this to happen, there is one crucial thing that has to happen. A scroll must be opened. And that's where we are in chapter 5. So chapter 5 starts in verse 1. And he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So if this scroll, if you read the story of Revelation, and if you see if this scroll is open, it will lead to a whole bunch of stuff that will lead to chapter 21. So he sees a scroll, but the scroll is sealed. It's not opened. Then he says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So there is this call like this, if you, this scroll is open, we'll get there. But if it's not, we won't. And he says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then we get to verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So they find no one to do this. And then John, as a natural reaction, 
says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then we come to verse 5, which I personally find very interesting because from this, from up to this point, everything that John has seen has been revealed to him by Jesus. So Jesus is constantly guiding John and seeing the whole thing. And then you get to verse 5, and John is seeing the throne and the elders and the living creatures and the scroll, and no one is able to, and the angel, and no one is able to open, and he begins to weep. He seems like to be this audience that is looking at this whole scene, And then on verse 5, one of the characters turned to him and talked to him. And he says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then here, John is weeping because we're not going to get to chapter 21. And then one of the characters in the whole scene turns to him and says, don't cry, don't weep. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. And this whole language of lion of the tribe of Judah and root of David, it's rooted in the Old Testament. Because, by the way, the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament book that you will find in the New Testament. It's filled with images from the Old Testament. And both of, this, both of these images, they are images of the Messiah that would come to deliver his people. Now, as you think about a lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, King David, as John is this Christian Jew in the first century, he is imagining this warrior that is going to come, like this military warrior that's going to come and make chapter 21 happen. And then he gets very surprised when he gets to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, so the whole shift the whole scene, his, his perception turns to the center of the scene between the throne and the creatures. And he says, between those, the throne and the creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which looks really weird if you think about it which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, here we come to an important part. So John is expecting this military warrior that's going to come and deliver them and make chapter 21 happen. And instead, he sees a lamb. And not any lamb, but he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. So it's not this superhero warrior that's going to come. It's this 
lamb that as he looks, it looks as if it had been slain. It has the marks of his, of his sacrifice. And then we get to, to the title of this whole sermon, Jesus is Perfect. Uh, and I'm going to ask her permission to be a little nerdy right now. When you study uh, Greek, uh, especially the verb, tenses, you have verbs that describe the past, you have verbs that describe the present, and you have verbs that describe the future. Much like English or Dutch, I think. I'm not that fluent in Dutch. Uh, but there is also one more type of verb that appears in the Greek language. And this type of verb is called the perfect verb. Now, the perfect verb means that an action happened in the past that has continuous consequences and influence, and, and it, it still goes on to the present and the future. So it's something that is realized in the past, but has continuous consequence in the future. Now, this whole scene in Revelation is describing all of these things, and then you get to the description of the lamb, and he says, and the lamb looked as if it had been slain. And the verb had been slain is in the perfect tense. So it's something that happened that has present and future consequences. But it doesn't stop there. There is one more verb that is in the perfect. And I saw a lamb standing. Standing is in the perfect. What happened on the cross was in a specific moment that has consequences in the present and the future. But he didn't remain dead. He's standing. And he remains standing. Verse 7. And he went. And again another perfect. He took the scroll. From the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So Jesus is perfect. And when you look at the scene of the sacrifice that has enduring um, consequence and action, as well as that he didn't remain uh, slain, but that he is standing, he rose up, you get a beautiful scene of worship. Which will look much like what you see in the way that the Jewish way of portraying things, uh, going from the most important part of the scene and spreading out. You see verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, so what is their new song all about? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then, widening a little bit more, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then he widens the picture as much as he possibly can. And he says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the scene shifts back to the center back to the living creatures as they say, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So as you go through these tensions of remain faithful, not remain faithful, and a beautiful scene in heaven, do we get there, do we not get there? And I see chapter 21, it's fantastic, everything together. How is this all going to work out? It has already worked out because the lamb was slain. And his action endures to this day, but he didn't stay dead. He rose up and he continues to stay up. He is the grounds by which we live our faith. And as a result, we can only bow down and worship. So let's bow our heads and worship.